Our sermon text this evening comes from 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 31. In preparing the message, I checked the last time this had been preached at CPC, and lo and behold, almost 10 years ago exactly, Ian Hamilton preached this text in July of 2013. So, fitting now, a decade later, to revisit. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our text this evening, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, is one of the most well-known passages in Paul's letters. It's famous because it's one of those moments where Paul takes your world and turns it inside out. And we could spend years just thinking about this text. Paul himself had obviously thought through the content of this chapter for years before he ever wrote this text. We know that when we look at the book of Acts, we see his other letters. It's a part of a broader logic that he has in giving an explanation of why his ministry has encountered the hostility that it has. So what he's basically doing in 1 Corinthians 1 is apologetics. It's not apologetics the way we normally think, though, of apologetics. So Paul had a problem. Essentially, it's the question, if the gospel is glorious, why isn't it glorious? Why is it so foolish? Why is the gospel a message about a man on a cross? Why do so many people not believe the gospel if it's so glorious? And Paul answers that question and says, God wanted to shatter the boast of every proud thing. That's why the gospel, according to worldly standards, is not glorious. That's why it's foolish. 
That's why both God and the church look weak in the gospel. It's because God is shattering the boast of every proud thing. And it's also because in a world of lies, the gospel is the only true thing left. For Paul, there's two periods in human history. There's before the cross and there's after the cross. And the cross leads us into a world of truth. Uh, the poet T.S. Eliot said once that human beings can't handle too much reality. Human beings can't handle too much reality. And so we dress the world in fiction. That's why people believe lies. That's why they believe lies they know are lies. Every one of, every one of you knows somebody that believes lies, and you know they know that they're lies, and they still believe it. Because it's comforting. It's comforting to believe a lie. Self-deception is the safest place in the world. I think we're inclined to think that people want the truth. That people are looking for the truth. That they're searching for it. They're desperate for the truth. But that's not true. That's not what sin did to our world. When sin entered our world, the first thing we did was hide from God. We didn't run to God, from, to God. We hid from God. And we're still hiding. Human beings cannot bear too much reality. And so that's why they reject the gospel. It's so real that no one wants it. And I think that's what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 1, that the gospel is the only real thing left in a world of lies. The gospel and the conflicts it creates are evidence that God is using it to humble the proud boasting of every exalted thing. So let's give our attention to this chapter this evening. We'll look at it under three headings. A foolish message, a weak God, and a weak church. That's verses 18 through 20. A foolish message. Verses 21 through 25, a weak God. And finally, a weak church. Another way to put it is that God is sovereign over the content of the gospel, the mode of the gospel, and the call of the gospel. So the first thing we should address here is that people don't like Paul. You find this often when you're talking with people who are not Christians. They don't like Paul. And it's not hard to see why. Um, people say we live in a gray world. But Paul thought in black and white. That's why people don't like him. He has these dualities in his thinking, these binaries. Paul sees the world split in two. There's two kinds of people. There's two ages. There's law and gospel. There's these dualities, these binaries. And the reason this happened was, was because whatever happened to him on the way to Damascus, he didn't come back nuancing the truth. Whatever happened to Paul there, he came back shattered. His entire perspective on the world had changed. One scholar calls it a conversion of the imagination. Paul wasn't just born again. His entire worldview was transfigured. So you can imagine, maybe in today's terminology, you have a Wahhabist Muslim, a radical Muslim, uh, a jihadi, who has spent his life hunting down Christians in a place like the Arabian Peninsula. 
And then suddenly a literal light from the sky blinds him. And he hears, you're mine now. Get up. Go to the city. I'll tell you what to do. Do you think that man's going to come back nuancing the relationship between Islam and Christianity? Do you think he's going to come back calling for interfaith dialogue? That's what happened to Paul. When Paul came back from whatever happened to him, he came back saying the gospel is more than a message, it's an apocalypse. So he says this in Galatians 1. An apocalypse is a revelation of the truth. That's what it is. It's not about the end of the world. Um, The word in Greek is literally apocalypto. It's to apocalypse. And Paul uses that word to say Christ was apocalypsed to me on the road to Damascus. And whatever used to be gray is all black and white now. So you can see why people don't like Paul. But that's the man behind our passage this evening. It's a man who was radically changed by an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So look with me at verse 18. He begins by saying, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So he starts the passage off with the word for. It's in support of what he just said. And what he just said was that Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And the question is, why? Why would eloquent wisdom empty the cross of its power? Wouldn't it enhance the acceptability of the cross? And in verses 18 through 21, Paul gives us an answer. He says the gospel is supposed to be foolishness. The gospel is supposed to be foolishness. It's supposed to be an offense. There's an irony here, Paul says. God's providence is ironic if you pay attention to it. God wants to cripple every proud thing. And he does it by letting people damn themselves with their own pride. That's what Paul is saying. He says the cross, I mean, look what he says here in verse 18. He says, the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The cross itself is not folly. It's folly to those who are perishing. There's a difference. The cross itself is the power of God. But some people think they're too smart to be saved. And so God lets that pride be its own punishment. And Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah in support here in verse 19. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. So why is the cross foolishness? Why are people perishing? It's because God is destroying the wisdom of the wise. He's silencing the boast of every proud thing. You have to remember, Paul preached in synagogues and they whipped him. And then he went to Athens in the book of Acts and they mocked him. And then he comes back to Corinth and he says, are you really surprised? This was God's plan all along. This is always what God wanted the gospel to be. God wanted our valuation of the cross to determine our destiny. That was the point. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
Worldly wisdom is, you could think of it, it, for Paul, it's like a vaccine that God has reverse engineered to be a virus. And now it's, it's plunging people one after another into judgment. I mean, what Paul says here is it's harsh. When God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, what he's saying is the word of the cross will become folly to them. Those two statements are equivalent. It's like saying the vaccine will become a virus to them. And I wonder, have you ever thought about the world this way? I mean, if you step back and you look at the world, or let's just look at this passage. If you step back and you look at the control center of this passage, who's in control? It's God. I mean, this passage is brimming with the sovereignty of God. I mean, look at this. In verse 20, Paul says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21, It pleased God to save those who believe. Verse 24, But to those who are called. Verse 26, For consider your calling. Verse 27, God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low. And he ends in verse 30 by saying, Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. God is not campaigning for God. Paul has no worries about people rejecting the gospel, treating with hostility, and mocking him. Paul says this is the plan. This is the sovereign God's plan. The gospel is the way that it is, precisely because God is sovereign over its contents. He didn't want the gospel to be a message of worldly wisdom. He says, brothers, I didn't come to you with the testimony of God in eloquent speech. I came to you pointing at a man suffering on a cross. And you have to remember the point here is apologetic. If the gospel is glorious, why isn't it glorious? And Paul parodies that irony. And he says, it's foolish on purpose. Foolishness was the point. He says, has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And I don't do this often because I think it's really overplayed, but there is a wordplay here in Greek that allows you to see more closely what Paul's doing. The word folly in verse 18 is a noun. Paul turns it into a verb in verse 20 and creates a wordplay out of the two. And we could actually do this in English. We can say, the world thinks the cross is foolish, but God has fooled the world's wisdom with the cross. That's exactly what Paul does. The world thinks the cross is foolish, but God has fooled the the world's wisdom with the cross. And so Paul says, this is exactly the way God wanted it. That's why. That's why. He goes on to look at a weak God. In verses 21 through 25, he lays out the mechanics of what he just said. And what he, what he does is he, he calls what he just said the foolishness and the weakness of God. Remember, he's parroting the irony. He's not saying literally that God's weak or that literally God's foolish, but he's leaning into the critique and then parodying it. And so he says in, in verse 21, For, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, 
It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And believe it or not, there's actually more wordplay here. Paul rhymes the contrast between folly and between wisdom. The word wisdom, sophias, is rhymed with the word folly, morias. They rhyme together because Paul is bringing this contrast together and saying, you're right. And there's an irony here because God in his providence wanted it that way. He says, in fact, that the irony pleased God. The question is, why? Why would it please God to do it this way? And so Paul gives us an answer in verse 22. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We need to hear this. So often people try to diagonalize the offense of the gospel. They want to avoid or shift the offense, the foolishness of the gospel. You know what I mean by diagonalize. Somebody asks you a direct question and you give an extremely indirect, circumvented answer. You're trying to diagonalize the offense by not giving a direct answer. They might ask something like, do you really believe this stuff? You really think Jesus is the only way to God? And someone might answer, well, you know, there's different ways of looking at this. And that's not what Paul does. I mean, we try to minimize. We try to soften the blow of the cross. And probably what I just explained here felt really harsh to hear. Because Paul doesn't soften this at all. He says it's just not true. There's some things in the world that are true and they're hard to hear. And here's one of them. We want to distract people from the cross. But Paul revels in the cross. And it's not, it's not the absurdity of the cross. He revels in the power and the truth of the cross. Paul says in Galatians, the cross is where he loved me. And he gave himself for me. Paul says he took my name to the cross. He saved me. If sin separated me from God, the cross was the last time I ever saw it alive. That's why I revel. Paul says they put a man on a cross. And now my life is nothing but freedom. That's, that's why I revel. And you only think it's foolish because you're perishing. We have forgotten the offense of the cross. I mean, it's almost hard for us to understand what Paul is doing here. Because the cross is a religious symbol to us. You can go outside and it's on a hundred different buildings. People wear it around their necks. But the cross was an instrument of execution for Paul. It was awful. You've never gone out to get water one morning and seen a body hanging from a cross. The closest thing we can imagine to the offense of the cross, the writer Fleming Rutledge says, is to see a cross burning in the front yard of a black family in Mississippi. The cross in the Roman world was despicable. It was shameful. It was cruel and grotesque. You didn't wear it on your neck. You didn't mention it 
and polite conversation. It was a hideous fact about life under Roman rule. And Christians were saying, God hung on one of those. And now I've been set free. My sins are forgiven. And you can imagine how ridiculous that must have sounded. And you know, actually, we have evidence of how ridiculous people thought it was. Years ago, archaeologists found a piece of graffiti in Rome from probably the 2nd or the 3rd century. And it's a picture. uh, You can Google this. It's a picture of two men. One of the men has the head of a donkey and he's hanging from a cross. And the other man, man is standing at the foot of the cross, worshiping him. And underneath in Greek it says, Alexamenos worships his God. That's what people thought of early Christians. And the irony here is that whoever wrote this actually misspelled the word worship. So it's a bit of a cell phone. But you can see that Christianity was not respectable. People did not find this to be a conceivable option in the marketplace of ideas. It was absurd. And in a context like this, Paul says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. He revels in the truth of the gospel, in the context of their mockery. And he says in verse 22, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. If you want a sign, the cross is a stumbling block. And if you want wisdom, the cross is foolishness. But if you want to be saved, the cross is the wisdom and it's the power of Almighty God. Don't listen to anybody who goes on BBC and says there's multiple ways to God. They're lying to you. Only one God has a beating heart. Paul says only one God died for you. Your sins can be washed away. You can be forgiven. But you have to come through the cross. You have to come through Christ. He's the only way. And you might say, well, what about everybody else? They're not coming. But what is that to you? You don't have to make sense of everybody else. Right now, you're in earshot of the gospel. That's all that matters. People ask, well, what about everybody else? I don't know. It's not my job to answer for everybody else. What I know is that I once followed everyone else to hell. And you can follow me to Christ. That's what Christian evangelism is. You don't have to know all the answers. You know the most important thing there is to know about everything else. You know Christ. The Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's only through the cross. You can only come to God through the blood of his son. And you might think it's foolish. But what does Paul say? In verse 25, he says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Wisdom will not save you. Your wisdom won't get you anywhere. You can't climb a rope if it's sitting on the ground. The only way to God is through the cross. The only way to God is through a foolish cross, an offensive cross, a weak cross cross but to those who are being saved this cross is the power of almighty god this is what paul has to say to us this evening 
He tells us to own up to the foolishness and the offense of the gospel. Don't run from it. Revel in it. And he doesn't mean act like a jerk. I feel like we should say this. Like, There's people out there, and you know them, they think they're a jerk for God. They think they're, they have a mission from God to be a jerk to people. They're mean and they're combative. They're proud in their hearts. They just want to outclass others in verbal combat. But what, is, what does the Lord say we should do in 1 Peter 3? Always be prepared to give a defense, but with gentleness and respect. I think people miss that. Offending people with something other than the gospel is not biblical. If somebody walks away and they're offended by your personality, how you spoke to them, how you were a jerk to them, you did no service to God. You're supposed to be gentle and respectful. This week in the Church Times, some of you might have seen, an MP said that Christians pander to an ancient bigotry. So how do Christians respond when somebody talks to you that way? With gentleness and with respect. I remember talking with a student one time and they told me they were, they were sitting at high table with some other students. And somehow the conversation turned to sexual ethics. And someone asked, as a Christian, if they thought homosexuality was a sin. The gotcha question. There's no way to win if somebody asks you that. You either incriminate yourself or you betray your faith. And this person just calmly responded, yes, I do. That's what the Bible teaches. And there was an awkward silence and someone responded, okay, I respect that. That's what Paul means by owning up to the offense. And this is what Peter means by gentleness and respect. You don't need to be, um, you don't need to be combative. Be confident, be firm, but don't let anything except the gospel be an offense. So finally, this brings us to a weak church. In verses 26 through 31, if the gospel has this character, and if the content of the gospel tells us about a God who has this character, what kind of person does this God call to be his church? And that's what Paul tells us in verses 26 through 31. He writes in support of what he just said. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Notice he says, not many. There were some. We know this from archaeological records. Um, Paul mentions a person in his letter, in fact, who was a, a governing official. But there weren't many. If you visited one of Paul's churches and you looked around, you would not see a church filled with academics and politicians and aristocrats. And the question is why? Remember, if the, the earlier question was, if the gospel's glorious, why isn't it glorious? We could t- take that here and say, if the church is glorious, why isn't it glorious? Why is the church weak? Why is the church low and, and despised? Where are all the aristocrats? Where are all the politicians and the important people? Are they missing out on this? And Paul answers in verse 27 and just says, Oh, foolish man. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world 
and the reason so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Just like God wanted a foolish gospel, he also wanted a weak church. The constituency of the church is meant to be unimpressive. And this frees us. We put so much pressure on ourselves. We tell ourselves for the gospel to get an audience in a modern world. Well, we need, we need to be incredibly intelligent. We need to be beautiful. We need to be really good at apologetics. We need to flash impressive credentials to the world. And it doesn't matter. Look, it, it doesn't matter. I've seen world-renowned scholars with multiple PhDs called idiots just because they're Christians. If you try to play the world's game, you're playing against God's hand. That's precisely what Paul is trying to point out to you here. He's saying, don't try to be anything other than what you are. It's okay that you're normal. It's okay that you don't have credentials. It's okay that you're not uh, impressive. Relax. In fact, trying to be too clever actually undermines God's purposes. Because the cross is foolish. The church is weak. And the gospel is a message about a man hanging from a cross. You could try to bedazzle that with intellect and human achievement, but you're just undermining its very purpose. Paul tries to point this out here. He says, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So don't expect a gospel that's wise according to worldly standards. I think that also includes not feeling, I'm trying to be careful with my words here, those who tinker with the doctrines of the gospel to tailor them to a world that is hostile. Beware. Beware somebody who's not willing to own up to the offense of the gospel, even if they, fly, they say they fly the banner of Christ. God is shattering the boast of every proud thing. He chose what is low and despised in the world. God is using weak things to shame the strong. And when somebody walks up and flashes their credentials and tries to be an impressive intellectual to bedazzle the cross with human achievement, beware. Beware. That's why the church looks the way it does. That's why you turn up on a Lord's Day to your services and the room isn't filled with important and prestigious people. It's filled with those whom God loves precisely because they're low. Precisely because they're low. And the truth is that we don't know why God chooses some people for salvation and not others. There is no explanation in you for why God chose you and not someone else. But Paul says there's at least one reason. It's to shatter the boast of every proud thing. Why did God choose who he chose? We know it was not on the basis of worth. There was no criteria of worth. God alone is the explanation of his mercy. You weren't chosen because you brought something to the table. Notice what Paul says in verse 30. He says, it's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus. It's because of him. And it's because of him that Christ became 
to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That is the point here. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You're a Christian because you were chosen. You're a Christian because of him. Not because you brought anything of value to the table. Martin Luther said the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. I think that's exactly right. This is what justification by faith is all about. This is why you're free. This is why your only boast is God. Paul says look around. What criteria for salvation do you see? None. There's no way you can look in this room and say, well, there's an obvious logic to God's choice as to who he decided to save. When you look around, you see a church that's low, and a church that's weak, and a church that's despised. And God did this on purpose. He did it so that no human being might boast in his presence. You can't do anything. I mean, this is, this is what's so encouraging about this. If this is true, it's not just that you're small. It's that you can't do anything to earn your salvation. And God wouldn't let you, even if you could. It's because salvation is merciful. It's merciful. God has abolished the pyramid of privilege. If the gospel was about those who are worthy, then we would find, I mean, salvation could be earned. Then we would find the people earning it were the ones who had more privilege. They would be rich and fortunate. They'd be privileged and aristocratic. But this is freeing. But God in his mercy has allowed it to be the case that no one can merit their salvation. And it's precisely for that reason that God's humbling of all things is actually a part of his tenderness. It's actually a part of his mercy. No one gets to come to God and boast in his presence. Therefore, there are no criteria of worth anymore in God's economy. The only thing that matters is receiving the message of the gospel. And that frees us. That lifts us. It encourages us. It allows us to stop looking in and just fix our eyes on Christ and say, He alone is the reason for my salvation. Because God has shattered the boasting of every proud thing, I don't ever have to worry. Do I still bring the same thing to the table that he saved me for back then? There's never going to be a reason God will change his mind about you because you didn't bring anything to the table in the first place. That's why this passage, as harsh as it is, is actually good news. It's liberating and it's freeing. If you allow yourself to be humbled by this passage, you can have infinite ages of joy. You can have confidence in your life that there is no grounds or basis for God's mercy to me than God's mercy. I didn't bring anything to the table, so I can't lose anything either. You can't earn your salvation, but Paul says even if you could, God wouldn't let you because he's merciful. So in conclusion, let me say this. Sometimes we read things in Scripture and we struggle to know how to apply it. And this is not one of those things. Paul's incredibly clear. And besides the obvious applications to evangelism, there's one thing I want to highlight, especially in our 
current cultural climate. The church has one attraction. It's Christ. We shouldn't have to say that, but we do. The church has one attraction. It's Christ. Christ alone is our attraction. The cross is our only message. Some people want signs. Some people want wisdom. And all we have for them is Christ crucified. And I think especially in our day where opinions are cheap. And everyone wants the church to be a mascot for some cause. We need more than ever to zero in on this one message. And to say that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. And now he lives and reigns to renew all things. They will think it's foolish. And they might find it offensive. But to those of us who are being saved, this is the power of God. Christ, the power and, and the wisdom of God. Amen.